0: This afternoon we're continuing our study through the book of Matthew and what a, what a privilege it is to sit at the feet of Jesus as he teaches us in this Sermon on the Mount. Please follow along with me as I read. I'm going to begin in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 16. This is the, the word of God, the inspired, inerrant, sufficient word of God for us. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You pray once again with me. Father, uh, we come to your word this afternoon together and may you uh, pierce our hearts with your word by your spirit. Uh, May we be encouraged where we need to be encouraged. May we be convicted where we should be convicted. Holy Spirit, Illuminate our minds that we may behold. Illuminate our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your word. Give me grace as I preach your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, this afternoon. Amen. 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 4.25 p.m. Last week, Larry brought us to the conclusion of our study of the Beatitudes. And in a sense, it was a very sobering conclusion. He showed us that the blessing of belonging to God's kingdom, of being his disciple, is not only evidenced in how we live, but in how the world responds to us because of how we live. Matthew five eleven says, we just read, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Larry pointed us to the, the sure fact of persecution for followers of Jesus Christ. He said this, said, the condition of being despised and rejected, slandered and persecuted, is as much a normal mark of Christian discipleship as being pure in heart or merciful. The condition of being despised and rejected is, as, rejected is as much a sure mark of Christian discipleship as being pure in heart or merciful. These are sobering words for us, because if you're anything like me, you don't want to be hated. You don't want to be... Persecuted you don't want people to oppose you You don't want people to revile you or utter all kinds of evil against you falsely you don't I don't If you're anything like me you want your neighbors your co-workers your family members You want them to like you? You want them to think well of you to look up to you to appreciate you? But it's so easy for us to forget or neglect or deny the words of Jesus That he speaks here in Matthew 5 or that we hear from him on the night before he was killed on the cross. As he's preparing his disciples for what is to come for the hatred and rejection that they will face. Jesus says this in John 15 verses 18 and 19. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus is telling them that the world will hate them because of who they are as those who follow him. These words were true for the disciples then, 2,000 years ago. They are true for us today. The world will reject and oppose us if we follow Christ. Now, For a long time in our country, it was common to think of ourselves as the exception to this rule. Sure, persecution and opposition, they're, they're realities, they're global facts for Christian and Christians in general. But here in America, it's different. Well, as you know, our, our culture today is no longer leaving much room in public spaces for those who believe in God and the Bible. We live today in what has been described by, by one guy I heard as a negative world. And in this world to be a Christian is a social negative. Christianity as a system of beliefs, as a way of being in the world, is seen as something that undermines what the world views as good. What we believe goes against the current of progress. The morality and ethics of Christianity, then, are to be rejected. This is the negative world we find ourselves in. There's a whole host of evidence that I could pull to support this assertion of this negative world. Even if we could look at the news of the past couple of weeks, everything from the passage of the Equality Act in the House of Representatives to the celebration of a sexual revolution, all point to a culture that stands in opposition to the teachings of scripture and the moral implications of those teachings. The world in which we live, from the neighborhoods we call home to the workplaces and schools we're involved in each day, they seem to be making less and less space for those who follow Jesus Christ. This is reality. And this is all alarming and disconcerting. But it should not be surprising to us. Jesus has told us that this is how it will be. That this is what we should expect. As those who follow Christ and his teachings, we're not promised better in this life. But we are promised hope and peace from now into eternity. 1 Peter 4, 12-14, Peter reminds the church, he says... Beloved, do not be surprised at the the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Don't be surprised by it, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Sounds a lot like Jesus' words in Matthew 5. As Christians, we can find blessing... In the opposition of the world. Because it's this persecution that reveals our identity. It reveals who we are. It is from this context that we come to the words of Jesus. To which we're going to give our direction and attention this morning. This is the context. The world will hate you and reject you because of who you are. But do not be discouraged. Because it is to this that God has called you for his glory. Chapter 5, verses 13 through 16 is what we're going to be looking at specifically. And Jesus is telling his disciples that because of who they are as his disciples, they are to stand out as witnesses of Christ to the glory of God. This is the claim that the text makes upon us today. We are to live as a distinct community. We are to live as a distinct community of disciples, shining as lights in darkness for the glory of God. This is what we are called... To do and Jesus in Matthew 5 he turns to two vivid images to make his point now the first picture Jesus gives us is about salt we read this in verse 13 you are the salt of the earth now it can be easy to skip right to the salty part of this verse and we're gonna get there but first I want you to notice the first two words of the sentence you are You are. It's not, you can be the salt of the earth. It's not, you will be the salt of the earth. But Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. It's a statement that Jesus makes of of a present reality. Now I want us to notice two things about this present reality. First, consider that Jesus is making this statement at the outset of his ministry. His disciples, they've only just begun walking with him. He's only just called his first disciples, yet he describes them as the salt of the earth. And later he's going to call them the light of the world. Prior to them joining him and doing actual ministry, they are these things. They are these things not because of what they've done or because of what they know, but because Jesus chose them to be his followers. That's all they have going for them right now. Jesus has called them out of the world to follow him, and they're listening to him. You are the salt of the earth. The same is true for us today, and this is something that Larry and I have highlighted as we've made our way through the Beatitudes. Those who are blessed are not blessed because they act in a certain way. No, instead they act in a certain way because of who they are. Identity precedes activity. Who we are determines how we live. So Jesus is not telling us to be something that we are not already. He's telling his people that this is who they are. You are the salt of the earth. And then he's going to encourage them to live like it. Jesus is saying that if you are his disciple, then you are the salt of the earth, so now act like it. The second thing I want us to notice about these two words, you are, is this. I think we can tend to read these words, you are, as if they're addressing us As individuals so I am the salt of the earth now yes if you are Christ's disciples you are included in this so you in the singular sense you are the salt of the earth but Jesus language isn't singular his language is plural you all you as a community are the salt of the earth Now, as we consider these two metaphors first salt and then in a little bit light Don't miss the corporate nature of our identity. This is our present reality. It's not so much that you are the salt of the earth, but that we are the salt of the earth. Our life as disciples is one that takes place together, takes place in the context of community. You are the salt of the earth. Now what does he mean by describing his disciples as the salt of the earth? What does that mean? Now, there are various ideas out there about what Jesus means by salt, but there's one just underlying important idea behind them all. That's this. To be the salt of the earth means to be distinct from the earth. To be salt means to be distinct. And this is made explicit in what Jesus says next in verse 13. He describes the opposite of being distinct. If salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. He's saying that that tasteless salt is no longer salt. It's good for nothing. But what is it about salt that makes it distinct? Now, one common use of salt in Jesus' time was as a preservative. Salt slowed decay. Salt was also used to season food. So preservative and seasoning, preserved food and enhanced the flavor of food. Now these ideas, they're, they're not separate ideas, they're actually complementary to one another. And this is how Christ followers are the salt of the earth today. We can have a preserving and enhancing impact upon the world around us. If you're a follower of Christ, I don't doubt that you have seen this in your own life. If you weren't really salty or distinct, then the way people behave around you, would be no different than if they were around anyone else well, sometimes that can be the case but oftentimes that's not the case and just in the past two days on friday christine came home from work and she was telling us about an interaction she had with a coworker. and the co-worker said something not appropriate she caught herself stopped herself turned to christine and said oh i'm so sorry i'm so sorry just yesterday i was talking to one of my neighbors and I had the exact same experience where he started to say something that wasn't Wholesome. And he stopped himself. And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And in the past, I've like almost wanted to apologize. Like, oh no, don't, like, you can be yourself kind of thing. And as I've been studying this week and reflecting on this passage, it's like realizing, wow, what a gift that, that he is recognizing, so my neighbor, he's recognizing that there's something different about, distinct about the way I live my life. I'm salt. And the effect that it has upon him is that he's being more wholesome the effect that it had on Christine's co-worker, she's being more wholesome. And what a a gift that is. That's what it looks like to be the salt of the earth. Left to itself, a sinful world collapses into confusion and disorder. Sin destroys and is set on rotting the world we live in. But a Christian has a preserving effect upon the world around them. It slows, stands against the decay of evil. Those who follow Christ stand in distinction from a sinful world by preserving that which is good and true and wholesome and beautiful. And consider God's people are distinct disciples standing apart from the world, but they are still in the world. Salt is no good if it's left in the salt shaker. Salt must be put to use to preserve and enhance. That which it touches. So, our call is not to construct salt cellars that we can go all live as salt together in. That's not what God calls us to. We are to be the salt of the earth. We are to be in the world, but not of it. Now, Jesus next provides another picture that actually illuminates his first statement about salt. These sayings, they're not random sayings strung together. It's not. Oh, how about this? And how about this? But they belong next to one another. Jesus turns to another metaphor to describe his disciples. And he says this in verse 14 of chapter 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. If Christ's followers are the light of the world, implied in this statement is that the world is in darkness. Now it's important that we consider this for a moment. Darkness is a great problem of our world. It's the great problem of our world because darkness has an impact upon what we can see. For us who live in the age of the electric light and flashlights and computer screens, true darkness can be difficult to grasp. We don't fully comprehend the blinding nature of darkness. I was recently reading to my kids and there was this description of total darkness in the book we were reading. These two brothers, Janner and Kalmar, they're making their way into a cave under a mountain called the Deeps of Throg. And listen to the author's description as they journey deeper into a mountain, into this mountain. The author says this, he says, Janner, one of the brothers, had begun to feel like the mountain was pressing down on him, crushing the part of his mind that knew light and shape until he was forever blind. He needed to light a lantern before he went mad. When he let go of his brother's hand, he realized he had been squeezing it for a while now, but with nothing to hold on to, he lost all sense of place and felt like he was falling. Now, I don't ever remember experiencing darkness like that. I've heard other people describe darkness like that, but total darkness is disorienting. We lose our sense of space, of, of where up is and down is, and the same is true morally when we are in darkness. In darkness, we lose the ability to determine right from wrong, good from bad, holy from profane. And this is the darkness of the world we live in. You don't have to look very hard for evidence of this darkness. We see darkness when many think that it makes sense for a biological man to say that he is a woman and that this is a wonderful thing and something that should be celebrated. We see darkness when many fight for the right to murder a baby before it's born in the name of equality and freedom. This is not freedom, but bondage and wickedness. We see darkness in our world as slavery to our passions. It's it's the hopeless and deadly tyranny of living for ourselves. This is the darkness of our world. Sinclair Ferguson, he writes this, he says, man is so completely surrounded by his moral darkness that he cannot see his moral and spiritual foolishness. Then Ferguson goes on, he says, if only he lived within a hundred miles of a city, it might light up his night sky and he might see his profound spiritual need and repent. You, Jesus says, are the city that man needs. Jesus says, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill, that cannot be hidden. And here the the force of the corporate reality of who we are is brought out plainly. To be the light of the world is not this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. It is that, but it's much more than that. It's the brightness of the many lights of the city shining bright together in a dark world. This is the effect that a community of disciples has on the world around them lighting up the darkness around us, bringing sight where there was blindness, bringing clarity where there was confusion, bringing hope where there was only despair. You are the light of the world. One of the things I want, want us to notice, notice here is, Jesus says in verse 12, that you, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. The, the word used there for earth is referring to land. That's what it is, and it's, a, it's for a Jewish reader, It would have connotations of the promise, the covenant God had made to Abraham, that he would give him a people and a land to make him a blessing to all nations. So people would have seen that, you are the salt of the earth. But then in verse 14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world, which expands this way beyond just this land for God's covenant people, but it's what he promises to Abraham, that he is going to be a blessing to all nations. You are the light of the world of the world. This idea of light is an important concept in scripture, especially in the prophecies of Isaiah. We've already seen how Matthew loves to go back to Isaiah, to bring out the old in order to show the new. We just saw in Matthew 4 how Jesus quotes from Isaiah 9. And you can look back at chapter 4 verses 15 and 16. He says, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Isaiah 9:2 the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Isaiah, throughout his prophecies, uses shining light to point to the coming Messiah and his glory being made known throughout the world. So in Isaiah 42-6, the Lord calls his servant pointing to the coming of Jesus, and he says this, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. We see that same phrase again in Isaiah 49, verse 6, that the Lord's servant will be made as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And we know that Jesus is that light. He is the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. In John 8, 12, Jesus describes himself as the light of the world, saying, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We just sang about this light just a moment ago. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. And it's here in Jesus' words of Matthew 5 that we begin to see just how God's words in Isaiah are to be fulfilled. Jesus is a light to the nations in his coming. He is this true light. But by identifying his disciples with himself, his disciples then shine his light in the world to the very ends of the earth. We see this theme carried throughout Matthew, and we see it culminate in the Great Commission, where his disciples are to go into all the world. We are called to do the same. So we see Jesus is the marvelous light that we have been called into, and we are now to shine his light into the world around us. And just how are we to do that? Well, Jesus tells us how we are not to do it first. He says this in Matthew five fifteen. He says, people do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. Now, similar to salt left in the shaker, light that is covered is good for nothing and helps no one. A few years ago, there was this uh, book released called The Benedict Option. And it surveyed the darkness of our world, the trajectory of the culture, and its opposition to Christianity. And it called on Christians to, to form strong communities that would stand against the moral and philosophical Philosophical currents of our age. Now, while there's much to be commended in this book, it was easy to come away from it thinking that the solution to our problems is to pull away from the world until this secular age crashes onto the shore and is brought back out in the ocean. So let's withdraw and wait until we can reemerge. But this idea, which can be expressed in many different ways, is like hiding a lamp under a basket. To withdraw from the world around us is to cease to be salt. It's to hide our light. The very purpose of our existence as Christ's followers is to shine his light. As light, we don't choose to shine or not. This is who we are. You are the light of the world. As salt, we can't just decide not to be salty. Like, oh, today's going to be a salty day, but tomorrow I'm going to just kind of keep that salt inside. No, this is who you are. If you are a follower of Christ, you are the salt of the earth. Jesus has brought us out of darkness into his light, that we might shine the light of the gospel in the dark world. It's only as we live lives as distinct disciples who are visible to others that we can have God's intended effect upon the world. So as salt and light, we are to be distinct and visible. Now all of the Beatitudes, they lead us up to this point in Matthew 5, 16, where we are exhorted with how to live in this world. Jesus has has made clear, he's making clear that all people, because you are my followers, all people are going to have to respond to you. And they're going to respond, he said in verses 10 through 12, by opposing and rejecting you. Then he tells us also how some will respond. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Not all will reject and oppose you. Some will see what you're doing as you follow me. And they, they will respond and they will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What an encouraging word this is for us. To know that, that God is at work. As we, as we are salty in the world and as we shine as lights in the world, God is at work in and through us. As we shine this, this light that he has given us. Again, it's not, it's not us. We're not doing these things so that other people might look to us. We are doing them so that we are doing good so that they might look to the true light, Jesus Christ. We are doing good in the world for the glory of God our Father. We don't do good so that people celebrate us. We don't do good so we might win friends and influence people. We don't do good so that we can live our best lives now. We do good. We are salt and light so that God may be glorified. Our response to this text must be to live as who we are. You have been bought with a price. You've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, then you have been united to Him, reconciled to God, saved by grace. So, brothers and sisters, live as you are. And don't just live as you are as an individual. Live as you are as a member of the body of Christ. What a gift it is that we get to walk together as salt and light in this world. We're not left to our, our own inventions, but we get to do this in the context of, of the redeemed community. What a gift that is. First Peter describes who we are this way, and this I'm gonna close. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thanks be to God. you Pray with me. Father, thank you for the light that has shone into our hearts that we might give you glory. Thank you for this work of grace that you have done. For once we were dead in our sins, once we were not a people, once we had not received mercy but now we are a people and have received mercy. So Lord, give us grace to now live as distinct disciples in this world. Thank you for uh, just the work of grace that you've done in so many at Grace Church, as they do this day in and day out, as they stand as covenant witnesses to all you've done, to who you are. And Lord, would you fortify us in the days ahead as we face persecution, rejection, or opposition, as others revile us or reject us, Lord, may we be confident in who we are as your children, as the redeemed people of God, as light bearers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the light of life who is shown in our hearts. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.